Yeah, should we do jumping jacks or something to kind of wake up and also warm up? <laughs> uh, Ron says it's just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he's a polar bear. Uh, well, let's get our minds off of that and on to God's Word. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to your... Uh, in your copy to Galatians chapter 2, we'll also have the text on the screen. We're giving our attention to this letter to the churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey. Um, after he had left, after he had finished planting those churches, he found out that some, were, some other teachers were coming through and changing the message, saying, well, you know, Paul told you about how to get saved, but he didn't really give you all the information you need, and we're here to fill in the gaps that he left out. So Paul learns about that. He sends this letter. In the first chapter, he starts his defense. He says, there is no other gospel, no other way of salvation. Um, the one that I preached to you, I got it straight from Jesus Christ himself, glorified and resurrection. He met me on the road to Damascus when I was breathing threats and murder, trying to wipe out the church. Uh, that Jesus is the one who gave me the gospel that I told you. Um, he says, I didn't even learn it from the other apostles. It wasn't man's gospel. Um, they're all good guys, but I hardly spend any time with them. I, was, I, I met Peter once, like three years into it. Um, he says, and also this gospel changed my life radically, made me a, a preacher of the gospel instead of a persecutor of the church. So that's his defense in chapter 1. But not to leave it at that, he goes on to say that even though I didn't get this gospel from any man, I didn't get it even from the apostles, however... I did, at one point, speak to the apostles about this gospel. We had a meeting, and we discussed it in earnest and at length. And so what follows in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is his description of that encounter. So would you follow with me in your copy of God's Word? We're going to read from Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and then ask for his help in understanding. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to this circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are present with us this morning by the Holy Spirit. And it was you who gathered us together to hear from you good news for our day, for our life, in a world of bad news. And so what we ask is this morning that by your Spirit you would open our hearts and receive from you all the hope that you intend to give us, correction where needed, but definitely encouragement and faith and hope so that when we go from this room this morning, it is with an awareness of how good you are and how good it is to be one of your own in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So something happened recently that reminded me of the ongoing relevance of this letter to the Galatians and also the need to preserve the truth of the gospel that's in the letter. About a month ago, a man posted a request on our website. He wanted to talk to a pastor about a question he had. It wasn't just his question. He was meeting with a group of 15 to 20 other believers uh, on a regular basis, and had, they were wrestling with something. So through some inter, email interactions that I had with this guy, um, he, he described the issue this way. We are united in our desire to deepen our relationship with God and learn more about His Word. We recently heard that faith alone is not enough for us to be saved. And we would be grateful for your guidance on this matter. Now, if you dangle an invitation like that before a gospel preacher, especially one who's preaching through Galatians, like that's like throwing red meat to a butcher's dog. Like, how can you say no to that? Uh, you want to hear about salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, and that works? Okay, sign me up. Where do we meet? Uh, but I didn't want to meet with like a 15 to 20 person group that I had no idea who they were, so I took a cautious approach. And I said, hey, I'll meet with you. Um, let's talk about this. So we set up a lunch appointment. I went to it. He brought another guy. Um, and they were both very uh, intense. Like, I wanted to get to know him a little bit and tell me more about his story. But they jumped right in. The guy got out his laptop. He had a whole list of questions. <clears throat> and the questions were all about the Old Testament, especially the covenant of the law. Uh, the law given to Moses, and they're reading these, these covenants. They had heard from some Bible teacher that the law was what they had to do to be saved. And some of the verses that he quoted were like, it seems to be saying that if you keep the law, you will be forgiven. If you keep the law, you will be saved. Um, and so if that was true for Israel, then why not for us today? He's really sincerely wrestling with it. It was pretty intense. And they were, I would say... Disturbed, They're the foundations about whether or not you're going to heaven were on the line here. So there was no time for chit-chat. We spent one hour. I don't think I convinced them. It was really getting into their head. And it reminded me that the gospel is always going to be challenged in this world. 
And either the, the, the devil wants to either keep you from believing it and being saved or to keep you from enjoying it once you are saved. That's always going to happen. And so this gospel needs to be preserved in every generation. The passage is Paul's account of how he and the other apostles did that in their day. So let's begin with the setting of this meeting to give it some context. In verse 1, Paul says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Went up from Antioch which is where Paul had been established as one of the pastors and teachers. There's only two possibilities if we follow Paul's ministry in the book of Acts as to when this meeting took place, this trip that he took. It could have been when he and Barnabas brought a famine relief collection to the Antioch, or from the Antioch church to the suffering believers in Jerusalem. That's recorded in Acts chapter 11. Or it was when he and Barnabas were sent by the church of Antioch to what's known as the Jerusalem Council, which is recorded in Acts 15. In that council, that's where the whole situation came to a head. What is the gospel? There's some people saying you need to be circumcised and believe the law of Moses to be saved. And others were saying, no, it's Christ alone by faith alone. And so they had this big council meeting. Okay, what's the gospel? Yeah, that's, just, that's Acts 15. So it's either that trip or it's this other trip that we, that we learned about in Acts 11. It doesn't matter that much which one of them it was when the meeting happened. What matters is what happened at the meeting that Paul's describing here in Galatians 2. And what happened is that the apostles and other leaders who are unnamed here reaffirmed the gospel that Paul preached. So we'll make four observations from the passage. This is, here's the first one. The true gospel will always be challenged by something. It will always be challenged by something. Verses 2 and 3 tell us why Paul went to Jerusalem. He said, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is actually the first time in the letter that we learn what the issue was, what this contrary gospel was that was being taught in the churches. It involved pressure on the Gentiles, the non-Jewish converts to Christianity, to have their males circumcised. And that's because these teachers uh, that were teaching this were Jews who professed faith in Christ as the Messiah, and their thinking was that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel to be his people. So if you want to be saved, you need to join Israel and receive the sign of the covenant, which is the circumcision of, of every male. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, but you also need to join the Jews in keeping the law of Moses beginning with circumcision. So here, Paul comes to Jerusalem with a man named Titus, who is a Greek. He's a believer in Christ, and he's not circumcised. And Paul's okay with that. 
In fact, Paul doesn't ever intend to have him circumcised. Because the gospel he received from the glorified Christ is the one Jesus preached in John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes. That's the key thing. Well, Titus believes in Christ. Titus has eternal life. Titus doesn't need the sign of God's covenant to the people of Israel. That is the gospel that Paul says he set before the leaders in Jerusalem, which would include at least James, Peter, also named Cephas, and John, who are all mentioned later, and then others who, are, who seemed influential. Now, Paul wasn't setting his gospel before these leaders in order to get their approval. He wasn't saying, you know, maybe I got this thing wrong. I better go talk to the authorities. I better go talk to Peter. What is he going to say? That's not what Paul was doing. Paul had met the risen Christ. The risen Christ had given him the gospel straight up, undiluted. He wasn't wondering if he had it right or not. He was there to make sure that they were on the same page, that the mother church in Jerusalem wasn't supporting this other gospel, with this, which is Jesus plus law. He didn't want them to be the ones supporting it and creating like two different gospels floating around out there, a Gentile version and a Jewish version, a, a Jesus-only version and a Jesus-plus-law version. He went back to the source and said, Guys, <laughs> are we all on the same page here? Because this is starting to cause trouble, this other gospel. Here's the takeaway, though. That there is always going to be some challenge, some other version of good news offered to get people to think this is the way, not the way that you think. And that challenge comes in, I think, two main categories, which we can call legalism or license. And I'll explain those. Legalism is when keeping certain moral laws becomes part of the basis for your salvation, the ground of it. If you do X, Y, and Z, and you're, then you're good to go. And faith in Jesus may be part of that, but you also need to obey certain commands. So the guys that I was talking to, they had been doing fine. They weren't brand new Christians. They, as they said, we are eager to grow deeper. But they heard this, this word from what seemed to be an authority, faith is not enough. You need works as the ground for your salvation. If you don't have them, you're, you're not going to be saved because you need to in order to be saved. And that was upsetting them big time. Um, and so that's, that was one of the things that's going around. Legalism is just, it's, it's Jesus plus something. It's a, you, you're, you have works. It could be without Jesus. There's another form of legalism. It's just other, other religions practice. Like, I must appease the God that's out there, whoever he is, whoever they are. So I must do all these things to be right with God. That's a legalism having to do with law. And sometimes that can appear very Christian if you add Jesus into the mix. But Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. It's Jesus alone that's the gospel. It's faith alone in his work on your behalf. 
But legalism isn't the only challenge. It's also license or licentiousness. This is the opposite. This is like thinking, well, my, I'm going to have life by throwing off the commands. Um, who needs Jesus? Who needs forgiveness? Um, real happiness, real life comes by me just kind of indulging, like just going all in, getting the most pleasure I can while I can, because there's nothing else after this. Um, that's, that's license. Uh, salvation is, is, the, is in the pleasure that you can find right now. Do anything you want sexually, anything you want with your body. Don't withhold from yourself any good thing. But that doesn't work either, because our problem isn't not that... It isn't that we aren't getting enough pleasure. It's that we need forgiveness from our Creator. Because He has a plan. He has a, a design for us. He has a way that we're to live, and we don't do that. And so there needs to be some, right, some wrongs that are, are righted. There needs to be forgiveness. And pursuing pleasure isn't going to touch that. So that doesn't work either. But those are alternative gospels that are out there. Um, these two paths of legalism and license, they're actually illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. I think many of us are familiar with that. There's a man, and he has two sons, and they both want to get in on the, on the father's estate, but each in a different way. Uh, one son says, I want to have it all now, and so he gets the father's wealth, and he spends it on all the pleasure that he can, but he ends up bankrupt and in ruins. He's the prodigal. He's the licentious one. The other son says, well, I'm going to follow all the rules, and then my father will see that I deserve the estate and give it all to me. But at the end of the parable, he's outside of the father's house. He's standing out in a field. He's frustrated and he's angry that all of his good words don't seem to count for anything. He's the legalist. But the parable is the son, the only son who ends up enjoying the party that the father throws is the prodigal who comes home empty-handed, repentant, Casting himself on mercy, that's, that's a picture of saving faith. And that's who gets to enjoy the Father's party and his estate. And that's a picture of how we get to enjoy the Father's house forever, is through faith. That humble, open-handed, I bring nothing to the table kind of thing. But there's always going to be a challenge from those categories to the gospel. So it needs to be preserved because only in the gospel do we find our true joy. And that leads to the next observation that the true gospel is the only path to freedom. It's the only path to freedom. Paul continues his report of the meeting in verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul is in this meeting, and uh, maybe it's the Jerusalem Council, maybe not, but they're in this meeting and there are false brothers involved. Uh, they're people of the kind that are influencing the Galatian churches. They're pressing for Titus and for all Gentile converts to get circumcised. 
that they need to become Jews or else they can't be saved. So Paul says to them, we did not yield in submission for a moment. You know, like we totally resisted that pressure that was coming on us. You know, like you got to have this little surgical ceremony. You know, you got to you got to do these religious holidays and you, and you've got to stay away from certain foods. Like that's not a big deal, right? Just do that too. Like you got you got the faith part going on, good. But like now add this to it, right? Come on, come on, do it. He said we had to resist that. We didn't yield to that. <clears throat> Why? Well, he says they were going to bring us into slavery. That's slavery to say, I have to do these things. The gospel is about our freedom that we have in Christ. And so we're not going to change freedom for slavery. No, thank you. Not going to do the surgical ceremony. Not going to pay attention to the holidays and all that. You don't have to. That was a radical thing to say to Jews about circumcision and food laws. These are things that God told Israel to do. These were God's laws. And he's saying, you know what? If you make Titus do that, you're making him a slave, not freeing him at all. That would be radical for them to hear that. But it's true. And I think we know it to be true. There's everything outside of Jesus for Jesus alone for salvation is going to be a kind of slavery. Because there's it's that plus part, that part you have to do, that is going to make you the slave. Um, how so? Well, let's talk about legalism first. The idea that your salvation is contingent on certain moral commandments being kept. How is that slavery? Well, it's because the law becomes your slave master. Uh, if your salvation is in any way dependent on your performance of doing certain things, then salvation is only as secure as your performance. And you will never really know if your performance is good enough. If you're not holding up your end, then you're not saved. You're going to live under the constant awareness that you must meet God's standards or you will perish. That's slavery. But the gospel is freedom from the crushing weight of needing to meet God's standards. Don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with the commands of God. They're right. They're good. A genuine Christian will seek to obey. But doing everything God requires is a challenge beyond any of us. Freedom comes from knowing that Christ has met God's standards for us. And that through faith in His record, through faith in Him, we get His record credited to us. We meet God's standards in Christ. So let me consider a, a college illustration, since that's the season of life that we're in in our house. Let's suppose CSU Fort Collins tells a promising veterinary student that she will get into veterinary school after four years if she gets a 4.0 for four years in undergraduate school. And not just a 4.0, not just A's all the way across, but 100% on all of your tests, 
100% on all of your assignments, never miss anything, no mistakes for four years. You do that, you can get into veterinary school. Does that start to feel like slavery? That would be slavery. Um, you must do this or you don't make the cut. That's a Jesus plus something gospel. The true gospel of freedom is like this. CSU tells Sarah on day one of her freshman... Oh, did I mention your name? <laughs> tells her on the first day of school, she will get into vet school no matter how well or how poorly she does in four years of undergraduate studies. It's guaranteed. She can fail every class. She's still going to get in. That would feel different, wouldn't it? That would feel like freedom. You'd start thinking thoughts like, I don't even need to go to class. I mean, I can just take the four years off. You'd start thinking things like that because that's what freedom feels like, right? I don't have to. But she's going to still go to class because I want to be a veterinarian. I want to do it because it's good. Changes the motivation. Makes it feel like freedom. That's the gospel of Christ. We make the cut because Jesus met God's standard for us. And we receive that perfect standard by faith. Takes the fear out of failure makes it so that when we obey God, we do it because it's good. Not because if we don't, you perish. That threat's gone. <clears throat> what about the licentious route? What about the prodigal? What about the gospel of our culture that says, we don't need Jesus, we don't need moral judgments on our lives, let's just go after pleasure, let's just do whatever feels right to us. Isn't that the very definition of freedom? No, that's still a form of slavery. And I think we know that from experience. What happens when you invest your hope in chasing pleasure, in going after amazing places, amazing events, more money, better health, more beauty, living the way you want to? What happens when that becomes your, your thing? This is going to give me what I want. Well, it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver the permanent happiness. It needs constant refreshing. It's never enough. It could always be better. And in the end, death takes it all away. Solomon had the life that everybody dreams about. He had all the money, all the power, all the health to do anything that his heart desired. It says he kept his heart from no pleasure. And looking back on the whole thing, he said it was all vanity and a striving after wind. Uh, the pursuit of pleasure becomes a slave master that you keep trying to satisfy and it's never enough. You have to keep doing it more and more and in the end you have a pile of trophies that are going to be thrown away or somebody else is going to get them. Um, I know from the sport of running that once you've had a good experience at a short distance, you start thinking about longer ones. You know, say you do your 5K and you think, that was fun. What would a 10K be like? That might be an even bigger happiness. So I'm going to run a 10K. And yes, it's fun. What's the next level? Half marathon. Let's do that. And you do that. And then that gets boring. Well, marathon. 
And then after marathon, it's ultra marathon. And, the, and currently, the longest sanctioned running race, in the U.S. at least, is 3,100 miles. Yeah, what? Right. <laughs> Why do we have races like that? Because there's always more. We've never done enough. We become slaves to this quest for pleasure. And then we can't take any of it to the grave. Is that me? Okay. The gospel is better news. It's news of freedom. It says, you're secure in the love of God and the care of God right now and forever. In this life, you will have comfort for your sorrows. You'll have help for your challenges. You'll have strength to make it through. And on the other side of death is life everlasting, off-the-charts happiness. You're not going to care about what you didn't do here. And you can't lose it by your unsteady performance of all the good laws that God has given us. You can't lose it. That's freedom. And Paul says, we're not going to give that up. Not just to get a couple of things checked off of a list. No, thank you. The true gospel, here's another observation. The true gospel is one message for many cultures. He continues the report of the meeting in verses 6 through 9. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so we're talking Gentiles and Jews, uncircumcised and circumcised, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. This is a great outcome from this meeting. Paul says, the leaders in Jerusalem, those who seem to be influential, apostles and others, added nothing to me. They didn't correct the gospel of grace that I preached. They, they agreed that's the right one. They didn't say, change up your ministry strategy. Stop going to Gentile churches. Nothing like that. Didn't change any of that. Didn't change my approach. They agreed that Titus does not need to be circumcised. He doesn't need the sign of the covenant. And they gave the right hand of fellowship. They said, yes, we're, we're with you in this. We all have one gospel here. And here's the thing not to miss in that. He reaffirms there is one gospel for all cultures. Gentiles and Jews are going to get the same one. There's not going to be one gospel for Jews in Jerusalem and another gospel for Gentiles around the world. It's going to be this one. This one about grace of God comes to us through Jesus who died for our sins. That, that's a great outcome. <laughs> the apostles, the apostolic ministry was different. You're going to go to, Paul, you're going to go to Gentiles, and that's mainly what all of his missionary trips were about. 
He would preach to Jews first because he was an expert in the law himself, and he started with those guys. But right away, he would beeline over to the Gentiles, to the people who had never heard about any of Israel's stuff. And like raw pagans, he ends up in Athens, you know. They're philosophers. They're, they're like Harvard University guys. And he goes into their territory, and he brings this foreign message. What's he talking about? This is interesting. Let's have a big meeting and hear him. That's what Athens was like. Peter, those guys, they're going to be in Jerusalem. They're in that, they're in that historic, entrenched, hundreds of years of Old Testament law environment, and so they're going to bring it to that. And so they're going to say it maybe a little bit differently with context, but they're going to say the same thing in the end. Whether you're in Athens or in Jerusalem, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And faith in Him is how we are saved. One gospel, many cultures. Not one gospel for Aurora and one gospel for Isan in Thailand where we're supporting missionaries. It's the same one. One gospel, many cultures. And why is that? It's because the whole world is in a kind of slavery of one form or another. The ones who don't believe there is a God and are just going hard after, give me more happiness, give me more pleasure, give it to me now. And then there's the ones who are thinking there's a God out there, I, don't, I'm gonna, I better do the right things, I better appease this God, whoever he is. That's the world, that's the slavery that is everywhere. And there's only one key to unlock the prison and give us freedom. Jesus Christ. Faith in the one who died to pay for your sins. The sinless one whose sinless perfection becomes yours when you are like the one who comes in open-handed and says, I need that. And you are saved. That's why Sovereign Grace Churches endeavors to plant and strengthen churches all around the world with this same one gospel. Uh, we're involved in dozens of countries. It's, and we're, even in this church, we're involved in all sorts of things. We've got Rancho 3M in Mexico, right? Gospel going out there. We're supporting the, the, the Englands and Isan. The gospel's going out there. Um, I get to go to the pastor's college. You guys send me to the pastor's college in Ethiopia where they're preaching that gospel there and training pastors, and those pastors are going all over Africa. Why are we doing all that? Because we're trying to free people from slavery to freedom. And the gospel is the only way it's going to happen. And that gospel is going forward. I'll just uh, give you two encouraging stories on that. One is a book I just read, chapter one, that's, that Shannon gave us to read about how Muslims are being converted all around the world. Um, amazing stories. Um, is it called Dreams and Visions? Yeah. It's about 10 years old, but so it's fairly recent. But here's, here's one story. So in Egypt... Um, it's not uncommon for Muslims to have dreams about a man in a white robe. Um, it happens so often that there was actually an ad put in the Cairo Times saying, if you've seen a man in a white robe, call this number. And this number is a missionary <laughs> who tells them who the man in the white robe is. It's Jesus. Jesus. 
And when they have these visions, they have this sense of peace, like this man in the white robe is attractive. He, he does something for them that they've never encountered anywhere else, and they want to know who is this man in the white robe. And then the missionary says, I'll tell you who he is. He's Jesus, and he shares the gospel with them, and they're becoming saved. Like, and they know they're going to be persecuted. They know they could be killed, but they're, they want so much that peace that this person gave in their dream, that they'll, they're, they're willing to risk it. That's what God is doing in the Muslim world. Here's one that is uh, more recent. So we got an email from Dave Taylor. He's our director of global missions with Sovereign Grace. Um, he's telling us about what's going on in Ukraine. There's a church in, uh, in one of the war-torn areas. I mean, it, it gets rocketed regularly. And there's a church that was planted out of our European pastor's college in Ukraine. So we have connections there. And so one family that lives in the city where they are, their house got rocketed, but they had made it to the basement before it happened. The whole house collapsed on top of them, but they're in the basement trapped. Two days go by, neighbors figure out that they're in there and they get them out. Well, now they've got nothing. And they come to the church that's planted there, and they're looking for help. And our church and our family of churches is sending money there regularly to do this. They, they give food, blankets, shelter, care, and they bring them the gospel too. And this one family, uh, the one that was in there, there was six of them that was in the basement. Here's what the pastor said when they came to his church. He said, it was easy for me to tell them the gospel. Just as God saved them from physical death through their neighbors... He wants to save them from eternal death through Jesus Christ. They sincerely agreed with me, and we wept and prayed together. And so here's a whole family of six. This is like the jailer's family in Acts. Like they just, as a household, believed. The gospel of rescue in Christ is going to all the cultures in the world. It's the freedom that everyone needs whether it's here or there. One more observation about this gospel. The true gospel is always accompanied by good works. It's accompanied by good works. The Jerusalem leaders didn't add anything to Paul's gospel, but they did ask that one thing would characterize his ministry. And that's in verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. See, the, salvation, the gospel is not about salvation by doing good, but it will lead to doing good. If you're affected by God's mercy to you in Christ, you will be merciful to others. If you're affected by His compassion, it makes you compassionate. If you know your own poverty, apart from Christ's generosity... You will remember the poor also, like the church in Ukraine handing out food and the gospel to people. The gospel isn't just a message without actions. It's a message that's adorned with actions that communicate the tangible and intangible ways, the freedom and the, and the healing and the generosity of Christ. And Jesus, we know, was often with the poor and the suffering. Most of his miracles were done on people who had nothing. They weren't influential. They weren't amazing 
uh, leaders of the world. They were blind men and and just a, a woman with 12 years of a flow of blood and all of these people who are just normal and they're most of them just, they're dirt poor and that's where he goes. That's where his heart is because those are the people who are ready to come with open hands. That's why he said it's hard for a rich man to enter, the ha- enter heaven because the rich people think, I don't need Jesus. But the people who are down there who are suffering know I need something like the people trapped in a basement for two days in a war zone. I need something from outside. And they're ready. And that's partly why we go to the poor. We want to alleviate suffering just for its own sake, but also it gives us a platform to talk about the one who relieves our ultimate suffering. And that's why we're involved in safe families, because we're seeking to just be there for people. Get in their lives, do the hard thing, give them, give them daycare, give them a ride, give them whatever resources they need, because we have them, but also a, a platform to say, let me tell you about somebody who can really satisfy your soul. That's why we do it. The true gospel is always accompanied by good works. They don't save, but they do adorn the gospel and speak to its reality. So what have we learned from Paul's trip to Jerusalem? If nothing else, the true gospel is about freedom. Freedom from all the enslaving pursuits of the world. Freedom to enjoy God's gift of forgiveness, His presence, His promises, and eternal life without wondering day by day, am I, am I really His? Am I really going to get in on it? Freedom that makes us want to share with other people in good words and good works. So may the Lord increase that in us as we keep diving into this gospel and get it soaked into our heads so much that we feel free (laughs) because we are and that we help other people to become free. Let's pray. Keep us, Lord, from getting confused, tripped up, disturbed by winds of doctrine, by appeals to something that looks better, by somebody who seems to be an expert or seems to be having more fun than us. Keep us rooted in the only true way to life. Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.